0: Welcome to The Goodness Podcast, the Middle East's first platform dedicated to tackling women's health in a real and honest way. I'm your host, Noor Tahini. My guest on the podcast today is family medicine specialist, Dr. Carol Shidiak. I spoke to her while she was quarantining at home after contracting COVID, so I took the opportunity to ask her about the virus, its long-term effects, and the vaccine. We also discuss the business of modern medicine and why so many of us feel let down by conventional doctors. Hi, Dr. Carol. Hi, Noor. How are you feeling?
1: Much better. Much better. Back uh, almost, uh, no, actually completely symptom-free.
0: So you, you tested positive for COVID two weeks ago? Yes. Why is there such a wide range of symptoms? Like some people have, it's more of like a a respiratory issue. Some people have headaches, some people have flu-like symptoms. One of my husband's family members had almost like a gastroenteritis, like really bad stomach and and stomach problems and diarrhea and, and inflammation in the stomach. Why is it affecting people so differently? And is that something that you normally see in viruses?
1: Yes, actually it is, and you know we we do have four four other coronaviruses that are are known to infect uh, humans with the uh, symptoms normally of a cold. But uh, even with those coronaviruses, we we had experienced big range of symptoms. You know, the stomach bug thing actually yeah. is coming from from this intestinal flu. Like they're not really medical terms but uh, they're uh, they're used because of uh, the virus affecting different different organs of uh, of the body
0: okay so that's totally normal yeah and 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 what determines where the virus affects you
1: we don't know actually it's a very it's the how indiv- the individualism and uh, the differences in and how, how, how our bodies uh, are and our weakness points in, in some way. So we don't really know. There's no answer to this question, but the same way there's no answer to how most people recover from the flu, but some, even the influenza, but some would, would need hospital admission and some develop pneumonia. The same reason why A a simple virus like herpes that doesn't cause more than, uh, you know, a small rash can sometimes cause meningitis. Even in in non-immunocompromised patients, like uh, even in in healthy patients, but they could be in a state or stage in their life where they're not 100% fit, being stress, emotional stress is definitely a factor. Or uh, being fatigued because of work or lack of sleeping. This is uh, the magic of our body. It's a very smart machine. And I'm like, this is, this is actually what made me go into medicine. I, I really, since I started biology at school, I was amazed by how complex and smart our body is.
0: I was reading a few articles this morning about the long-term effects of COVID. And obviously, we don't know, right? Because it hasn't been long enough. But there's some uh, scientists that are suggesting that it can have some long-term neurological impact. So the loss of smell and taste is a sign that it's having an impact on your brain. And they're warning of potential early onset Alzheimer's and an impact to the hippocampus and long-term effects. To the brain, but also long term effects to the lungs. Have you seen anything about that? And is this something that you worry about?
1: As you said, it hasn't been long enough for us to know exactly how long these uh, symptoms are going to stay, but the cognitive uh, skills are uh, often affected. I remember a patient calling me uh, when he got a little bit worse. So when he got some complications and he couldn't find the words to, to describe to me what, what he was feeling, but he recovered completely. This is this one was one patient with diabetes who had to be admitted eventually and stayed in ICU and everything, but still he completely recovered now after probably three months. I have a patient who lost his voice completely, even after he tested negative. So it was after everything was fine. He recovered as well three months later. My own nurse, she got infected in March, like she was among the first to get infected. And uh, this was when we didn't know much about cognitive uh, skills issues and uh, brain, uh, the brain being affected. I, like she's a very, very, very smart human being and she doesn't take notes when I ask her to do something like she never takes notes. And I, I used to always tell her, why don't you take notes? And actually she, she never forgets anything. But after COVID, she was so forgetful. And I was like insisting on her taking notes and she was still like stubborn about it because like, I never took notes. Why I have to take notes now? Till I, you know, I I had a conversation with her and I want to make sure like, is she depressed? Is she, what's happening in her life? Why is this happening? Why is she doing so many mistakes when, when she was really brilliant and so smart? And this is, by then I had read about the brain issues. And when I told her that it might be COVID, she was actually relieved because she told me like she, she's forgetting the recipes. She cannot cook at home. She's not being able to help her kids, you know, with homework. Of course, like we, I don't, I didn't know. And so I don't know how long this can, can stay, but I reassured her because in general, we know that the body is good at fixing itself. So I think it took six months. So basically a couple of months back, I got my nurse back. Okay, But it took six months for her to really get back to normal. Most cases are, are mild. You know, we can have complications from any virus and we've seen a big range of complications and weird symptoms and weird long-term uh, Take the example of mononucleosis, for example. Um, This has been known to, to cause what we call glandular fever and fibromyalgia and fatigue for many years, even though we don't know exactly the mechanism of how it causes that, but we know that it can be a trigger for chronic diseases. But it's always a minority and it's always a small percentage. I hope it's the same with COVID. But the only difference here is that a lot of people, much more, the number is much higher than with other viruses, the number of complications. So the number of patients that are going to need hospital admission is much higher than with any other virus. And from the beginning, when we were talking about uh, flattening the curve, it still applies now. The whole thing about uh, being careful is to not incapacitate healthcare system so very sick people can still find uh, the care they needed what scientists and doctors have done in the last year is like mm, honestly magical extraordinary it's amazing because we we were able to identify the virus to start trials on on the vaccines since march uh, understand more what it is about. Uh, f- we found out that it is there's some coagulation issues and not only long uh, long issues that are uh, causing the the deaths. And we improved the treatment significantly. so the the death rate re- was reduced significantly. but you need to find a bed in the hospital or intensive care when when you need it. And if we're all sick at the same time, we then we, we we lose that chance to to get better if we get if we get complications. I'm optimistic here as well. Like you know a lot of people would say you can get it again and things like that. In reality there are people who are getting it again, but it's a small minority. It's a very small minority. Uh, with the vaccine we don't have like uh, time wise Definitely, we, didn't, we need more time to understand how protected uh, we are. We going to be, but uh, till now, we're um, we're seeing um, very positive results. There is a very very high chance that we will not develop complications, at least. So this is almost sure. We can catch the virus after the vaccine and have extremely mild symptoms, or not have symptoms at all. But what we know is that the virus can stay in our nose and throat for for some time. We're not going to get sick because we're immune, but we could transmit it to others. So, until the the majority of the population is either vaccinated or immune by the disease, we should not let our guards down. Uh, we should we should uh, still take all the precautions to protect our loved ones and to. Not to incapacitate the healthcare system. Like even though in the in this, those last two weeks or three weeks, I struggled to find beds for uh, some patients. Even even here in Dubai, where I consider that we're we're really lucky to to be here, uh, because the standard of care in hospitals is amazing. But we were at the verge. Or we still are probably because we're still having a lot of cases every day, uh, new cases, and the the number like from one day to another it increased by 1000 so for a long time we had like around 1200 cases per day then like 1800 900 then one day it was from 1800 to 2900 and now we're still there we're still we're still around 3000 cases per day but with same number of deaths so the mortality rate is actually lower in a way the, the what we call case fatalities so the percentage of people who die from the people who get infected, so uh, that's why I'm hopeful
0: is that because we got better at treating it or because the virus is less deadly at this stage because of maybe the way it's mutating or
1: changing or in general viruses when they mutate they mutate to survive
0: because mm-hmm. you
1: know it's a it's a living organism, so if we die, the virus dies with us and the virus doesn't want to, this to happen, so it's smart enough to mutate to a milder form in general to survive, so to stay to, to keep us alive and have the opportunity to live in different bodies and and survive and replicate. But there is no doubt that the treatment improved significantly, and we know a lot more about when the complications can happen, what complications mm-hmm. can happen, what is the indication for such or such implication. So we are prepared for for the worst in a way.
0: Yeah. I've, I've spoken to, obviously, it's like the conversation that you have with every single person that you speak to is, is coronavirus. And there's a sentiment that keeps coming back from people, which is like, how do we know so little about it still? But what I'm hearing from you when you were talking about the other viruses is that in general, we know... It, it's not that we know so little. It's that we don't know everything and it's hard to know everything because uh, everything is so interconnected. like it's almost like it, it does something here which does with, which creates a reaction here and then it evolves to create something here. So actually, we do know quite a bit about it.
1: The fact that the sequence of the virus was was discovered was found in I think February and vaccinations trials started in March. It's really amazing. I, I, I'm I in awe of the scientists who definitely have been working day and night in the last year.
0: Are you getting a lot of questions about the vaccines from your patients, about whether they should and shouldn't get it?
1: Yeah, a lot.
0: A lot of people, I think, are debating getting it or not getting it. They're also debating which one to get. So there's two options here in the UAE. There's Pfizer and the, there's Sinopharm, the Chinese one. And from what I understand, Sinopharm is uh, is how traditional vaccines are made. So you're given a dose of the dead virus and your body learns to fight that. And Pfizer is this new kind of vaccine called mRNA vaccines. Can you explain briefly what an mRNA vaccine, how it works?
1: The mRNA sequence is going to get into our cell, but not into our DNA. And it's going to give instruction to our cell to produce a uh, spike protein, which is the spike protein found on the virus itself. But this spike protein by itself doesn't cause any, any symptom, uh, but it would let the body develop. It's still a foreign body. So, so our body is going to develop antibodies against it. And by developing antibodies against it, it those same antibodies can uh, block the, the virus through the pr- protein spike from getting into our cells and replicate.
0: Okay, so basically, your cells are given this sequence and they start producing the protein that is also found in the coronavirus. Yes. And so it learns to fight it without having any coronavirus in your body so that when 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 if you catch coronavirus, it recognizes, oh, we fought this protein before and it knows what to do.
1: Exactly. So okay. this is why uh, it... It should be very very safe Uh, this is the first time we do a vaccine this way we are admitting this uh, but the mechanism have been tried already for other viruses but then they we didn't need them for example Ebola and Zika and so things get better and and we scientists didn't need to continue the experiments. but What's happening, the physiology and the biology of it is extremely safe. So there's nothing about our DNA changing or, or any, anything like that. So it's just like this small sequence into a mm. lipid ball to get into the cell and pr- produce spike protein. Okay. So
0: How crazy that we can do that. Yeah.
1: So in principle, it, it should not cause any issue. Okay. And this is how our body produces proteins in general. Like the DNA will send to the body mRNA uh, sequences. So the mRNA are in a way like uh, a transcription of, uh, of part of the DNA. And then the body would produce proteins like, you yeah. know, any protein that enzymes and the any protein we need uh, for our body to function you know conspiracy theories against vaccines have always been there and there are big anti-vaccine population and groups in all over the world even though it we have like tons of studies showing that their benefits outweigh their risks even though like the guy who came up with the possibility that uh, MMR, like measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, can cause uh, autism. It has been in jail because uh, the whole the whole thing was based on 12 cases, and then we discovered that he was paid by the law lawyers of these 12 kids or by their parents to to make the study look the way it looked. And when they reproduced the study on much bigger numbers, uh, it wasn't. Uh, we didn't find any relationships. Same thing with hepatitis B and multiple sclerosis. There was some observation, but then with time, we we realized that the number of multiple sclerosis before the hepatitis B and after hepatitis B is, is the same. This is the thing about, and the beauty about science. We're, science Scientists are very transparent. Like when you have now with the Pfizer vaccine, every now, now and then you hear about like, I think last week, a doctor died two weeks after the vaccine. It's the manufacturer, actually Pfizer released this information and authorities are investigating if if there is a relationship between between the vaccine and the death of this 53 years old doctor, I think. So, and you know, I I laugh at it because um, my daughter, who's like very witty and, and, and sharp and she catch on my conversation with patients a lot. She she tells me sometimes, how do patients still believe you? Like every couple of years, you change what you say. <laughs> so So we are humble enough to admit that sometimes we discover that what we've been doing was not good enough and we come with other guidelines and we change our practice accordingly.
0: Yeah, but I think also that, you know how you were saying, we're transparent and we, and we learn if we've been doing something wrong and we change that. I don't think that applies to all doctors. And I've heard this from many friends and I've had these experiences where perhaps uh, older doctors or not necessarily older, maybe it's just the fact that the ones that I have been uh, exposed to in these situations were older doctors. They've... It's almost like the knowledge is not up. They don't update their knowledge. And I agree with you that the doctors have a responsibility to keep updating because the, the science changes all the time. Like there's always new discoveries and always new things coming to light. And and unfortunately, a lot of doctors don't update their, their knowledge or don't stay up to date with what's happening and, and the information that they, they give is outdated.
1: Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's definitely an issue and you know i'm i'm a specialist in eating disorders and weight disorders and in this field like my mission is basically to reach doctors and try to change their approach and try to make them understand that what we've been doing year after year is wasn't is not working so it's insanity to still keep doing it and there is a certain stubbornness sometimes in, uh, in in the reaction of uh, of doctors to to what I talk about when I talk about uh, eating disorders and um, and weight management during this confinement, a medical journal asked me to write an, an literature review about polycystic ovary syndrome. But you know, between the problems in Lebanon and the pandemic, uh, I didn't really have time to do it until now when i got confined so when i started uh, researching the uh, searching the literature i found actually that there are guidelines amazing guidelines published just l- last year and unfortunately like i i have to admit that even i even though like everything that was in the guidelines i already had a feeling that it's true from different from different studies and from my practice, but I didn't know that these guidelines were out. So this is also kind of a problem because like you have to search for it. It doesn't always, especially when you are, you're not working in university hospital or a teaching hospital. So you have to do the effort of looking for information. They don't, don't come to you uh, like when you are a resident or if you're working in an academic setting. And the new guidelines for polycystic ovary syndrome are amazing. Like everything, everything that I'm struggling with, being with my patients or or with other doctors is there. Like the false diagnosis of teenagers, the necessity of uh, taking into consideration women's priorities and struggle, and uh, body image and depression and anxiety, Uh, that there's no difference between different diets and that uh, diets should be or any lifestyle change changes should be sustainable and maintainable and the risk of severely restricted diets all is clearly clearly in the guidelines so
0: this is a perfect segue into the into another question that i wanted to ask you which is why do you think there's this A general feeling that we've been let down by modern medicine, and I think in the age that we're in now, which is so much about alternative wellness um, and exploring alternative healing modalities and returning to some more traditional healing modalities, like you know Ayurveda, for example, or all of these all of these more traditional. How do like guess? I guess modality is the right word for them. Are really gaining in popularity because of this feeling we've been let down by modern medicine?
1: I cannot disagree that the feeling is there. Now, in the last year, because of the pandemic, this feeling has been fluctu- fluctuating. Like when we are in a peak like now, or like at, at the beginning, doctors were heroes and uh, uh, we had all uh, this appreciation. But then just after, when the things are a little bit better even though we're still during the pandemic the complaint starts and mainly because of the pressure doctors are under so we are all overwhelmed and uh, and pressured and have frustrated as well so so this year was was a little bit special in terms of the this this sense of uh, letting uh, have having been let down and it is unfortunate because what has been discovered and how fast it has been discovered uh, about COVID was amazing. And in general, the discoveries and in medicine as a science are huge and very useful in clinical practice. But medicine as an art of listening and communicating is, is suffering. It's, it's not the case. And medicine as a mission of empathy and care is definitely much less than optimal. But in my defense and the defense of my colleague, patients have to understand that we we are limited by time. And modern healthcare system, unfortunately, is controlled by healthcare health insurances. And, uh, you know, insurances would pay for a code. We have code per fee, a um, quote per procedure or quote per consultation, there's no quote, quote for time spent with the patient. So uh, if I spent five minutes with a patient or one hour with the patient, mm-hmm. the insurance would pay me the same. And honestly, it's it's really ridiculous because with all the inflation, but because of the economical situation, the fees paid by the insurance companies are less than probably five or six years ago. So mm. it, it doesn't make sense. And it's getting, it's making the doctors quite frustrated. And on top of, of that, you have all the bureaucracy and uh, administrative work uh, that they have to do that leaves most doctors, you know, get, get burned out, not because of patient, but because of the little time they have to, to see the patient, because of all mm. the time they have, to fill forms and to document and to enter information in electronic medical records and and all of this so this is when when a patient is going to go to see a doctor and is going to feel that they're not heard or they're treated as a number or they didn't have the opportunity of asking all their questions it's definitely going to be a negative experience and they're going to leave the consultation feeling frustrated. So this in my opinion the duration of the consultation is a major key. a major key and major reason for this sentiment.
0: Yeah. So yeah and then there's there's no incentive for the doctor to be spending more time with the patient and you're, as you're saying it's very much contrary to that and the issue is with the business of medicine more than medicine itself. But for example in my case I see a naturopathic doctor and she's not covered by insurance and and it's actually really cost prohibitive like to to go and see her but she my appointments with her are 45 minutes to an hour and i sit with her and we talk and we go through everything and you're right it's it's a completely different experience to feel heard and to, to have that time and to be with someone who you feel is literally digging into every aspect of your life to find out what it is, as opposed to, you know, a quick in and out with your GP.
1: Yes. Yeah. Again, in our defense, you said that it costs you a lot to see your mm-hmm. naturopath. Sometimes I see a patient during the consultation time i'm i'm given because even the the now i i have some flexibility because i always worked as a kind of um, you know revenue share not on salary so basically i uh, dictate in a way how how long i want to spend with the patient but at the same time like the clinic i'm working and they they need to make money so they won't let me see any patients one hour, for example. But when I see a patient and find that they really need more time, I suggest for them to book a long appointment. They do it happily. But then when when they are called to confirm the appointment and the receptionist tell them that, uh, you know, long consultations are not covered by insurance. So you have to pay cash, which is 500 dirhams, like I'm really even ashamed to tell you how much insurance companies pay us for the consultation. <laughs> really, yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, true,
0: true. And I think another reason also why there's this feeling is there's been a lot of bad press, especially in the wellness industry and so on around modern medicine. There's So, I mean, there's there's been countless documentaries, for example, where it's explained that uh, in medical school, most doctors didn't get um, didn't get training in nutrition, and it's come to light recently just how important nutrition is in uh, treating and healing the body. Um, there's also, for example, there there hasn't been a lot of focus in medical school. I'm sure the programs have changed since since the people who are talking or or, or giving these interviews studied, but there's, for example, this uh, also this feeling that there hasn't been enough work around the spirit and the mind-body connection or mind-body-spirit connection and that that is something that is so crucially missing from modern medicine that it it can impact its effectiveness
1: yes uh, unfortunately it's it's true and unfortunately it like i've been practicing for 25 years but when i was preparing for a conference that i called it first do no harm because we have we did an oath to first do no harm, but we are doing harm. I did research about how many hours medical students are getting for eating disorders, for example, or approach to weight management. And it's still very, very, very short. It's hours. And in the best case, a few hours. And we, we are taught all complications of malnutrition and all the complications of Weight gain, but nothing about how to approach the patient, how to engage the patient, how to help the patient with skills and tools to, you know, overcome these problems and the struggles. So this is definitely lacking. Basically, yes, we we didn't get um, much information about nutrition, but even nutritionists and dietitians, they they don't get taught the the approach Mm. because this is extremely important if even if you have all the scientific knowledge of the world if you cannot connect with the patient if you cannot engage the patient if you cannot motivate the patient if you cannot give the patient tools if if you don't ask the patient about the obstacles because how for example a patient is gonna change the the life his, his or her lifestyle if if they don't have any support system if they're living alone working 16 hours per day like those are very crucial information that we need to to have to be able to help those patients and even though as a family doctor like even let's say 20 years ago or so when i did my family medicine residency it really appealed to me because I had amazing professors and because already like family medicine, the definition, it family medicine actually came because or existed because of the same sentiment we're talking about. So GPs were found to be lacking in some skills and um, family medicine as a specialty came to fix what was lacking in a in a in a a gp uh, after seven years of medical school so we're talking four years extra after the seven years of medical school and the big title of family medicine is the dogma basically is biopsychosocial approach which means you know considering the biological and physiological changes the emotional status and the social support system for every condition if the patient is married or not, or has a partner or not, if work-life balance, time for exercise, anxiety, because all these are factors. And, and this is a huge problem in medicine, actually, in, in lifestyle medicine. Like telling a patient, eat less and exercise, in my opinion, is super condescending. Mm. It's not acceptable for a doctor to tell, to tell a patient, like you need to eat less and exercise more, as if this patient did not know. You know, we need to get. We, we need to understand first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we need to understand, and we need to listen to the patient. Understand what is going on. What? What? What are the struggles? What are the obstacles? And we need to do some problem solving and some alternative. Find together. It has to be collaborative, and we need to find together all these solutions. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, this is this is a big issue. So basically
0: it seems like what you're advocating for is a much more holistic approach. So looking at the patient's life in a holistic way. But in my in my in my mind, like a dream medical system would be one where there is so much more collaboration between doctors. So right now there is, yes, yeah, so your GP will send you to a specialist if they think you need to see a specialist, et cetera. But I imagine it would be kind of a almost like a, a dream scenario if you know your your family med family uh, medicine doctor Uh, was in contact with your naturopath who's in contact with your psychiatrist or your therapist who's in contact with obviously like no one has time to do that but to have all of these experts who come at health from a different perspective all of them to 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 work together
1: yeah it is in the medical guidelines I was talking about the new medical guidelines of uh, PCOS like it is literally there, the multidisciplinary approach with the primary care physician at the center, like leading the team in a way and uh, helping, making the conclusion of whatever has been decided with with the patient and definitely taking the patient perspective as well to, to, to get to a certain uh, approach or management it's even recommending having meetings between all the team and the patient as well and this is what we do in eating disorders and in yes. uh, in our team like uh, we're on whatsapp all, all the time we we'll meet weekly and with teenagers especially we have meetings like the whole team with the teenager and parents yeah. on on monthly basis but it's uh, so it's in the guidelines. It's there in the guidelines. Traditional medicine or modern medicine is holistic, and this exactly what you're talking about is required. But as you said, how we're going to find the time for it, and how we how can, how are we going to charge for it? Yeah. You know, because at the end of the day, a doctor has to make a living.
0: You know, in the U.S., there was a, a company called Parsley Health. I don't know if you read about them. They started in New York. But it was really interesting because they were trying to reinvent the model of healthcare, And they were similar to you. They were saying that the big problem is you know, doctors don't have enough time because of the way that the business is structured, et cetera. And so the way that they worked was you pay a membership to this clinic. You can go as many times as you want. You can sit for as long as you want. And they have... A GP, a functional medicine doctor, a nutritionist, a therapist, etc. They have their whole team there, and because you pay that membership fee, and you're not, you're obviously not going every day, etc., It 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 kind of supports the business that in a way that allows them to spend more time on specific cases and to have this holistic approach. It's super interesting. Yes. Uh, model. Yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know this clinic in Parsley. particular, but uh, yeah, but I I know about. Uh, many colleagues especially in in the states they uh, they do this membership and they have a, a certain number of patients who who pay membership and yeah. and they they don't have to to pay for every every consultation but here again like the membership is not going to be pay, uh, reimbursed by insurance companies no and you you have to find a way to make it feasible
0: My last question to you before we wrap this up is, are there any specific new age medicine trends or alternative healing modalities that strike you as particularly not based in in evidence?
1: I'm very open-minded. And I believe that you don't need a medical degree to be a healer. You know, I have uh, my grandfather and even my oldest aunt, like they lived in the village and they didn't do any any medical studies. They didn't even finish high school, and they're amazing healers. You know, uh, they've my grandfather who, who who died now. He he was super busy with with people coming to him for for help. And we don't have any doctor in the family, by the way. And the, the family has this way use this to explain why i i got into medicine so like it is somewhere in our genes even if we don't have doctors so they were healers and without without any study with intuition and common sense and compassion and care and listening but at the same time i'm all i'm okay with all that but i'm not okay with false claims especially with homeopathy for example the principle of homeopathy is completely non-scientific and actually i found out recently that there was a big uh, lawsuit against the company of uh, a very common um, homeop- homeopathic uh, medicine that that is available in pharmacies it's not only given by homeopaths so for for colds and the they mcgill medical school i think Started this, and they um, they were able to do that based on false claim, like because it was a medicine in pharmacies claiming that they can cure symptoms of cold when there was nothing in the tablet. It was a sugar tablet. Now sugar tablets work. Placebo effect is real. Yeah. Placebo effect is real. Like even in chemotherapy, when we compare. A medicine in cancer patients. We compare a medicine, a chemotherapy medicine, to placebo. You would find in the placebo group tumors shrinking significantly, and the medicine is would be considered effective only if it's significantly more effective than the placebo. So the placebo effect is is definitely huge, and the relationship we we have m- many studies about patient-doctor relationship that by itself is therapeutic yeah so definitely as you said your naturopath and and the homeopath with all the time they spend with with their patients and they do know medicine by the way especially modern uh, modern practitioners they they know a lot of biology and physiology and they will explain to you very clearly what's happening in your body so that a big part of the consultation is legitimate but then when it comes to what they prescribe to you this is where we have many question marks but just it's important to add one more thing that even though definitely i'm not worried about homeopathy in terms of causing harm because there's basically nothing in whatever they they're selling except if they are making the patient come and come again and you know the financial aspect of it is a little bit wrong but other than that it's it's not an issue but herbal therapy on the other hand here where i have some issues regarding safety because natural and herbal doesn't mean safe you know many medicines were extracted from from herbs yeah. so uh, they can be toxic and they're not regulated and we don't know if if what's listed on the ingredients is exactly what in the pill. And sometimes when they, when like authorities do random check, they they found disasters. Like they found Viagra in in herbs, in in medications claimed to be herbal for sexual dysfunction. They found steroids in um, protein shakes supposed to be just supplement. So we have safety issues in this part of alternative medicine,
0: yeah, from the lack of regulation, yes, yeah.
1: I, if because we can have benefits, I have no doubt that herbs can be beneficial. So I would, I would really be very happy when the authorities start regulating those stuff because I'm sure we we will find a lot of beneficial beneficial herbs, and we can reduce the harm done by the non beneficial or or toxic herbs.
0: Thank you so much for your time and uh, for making a, a really great case for modern medicine. It was really <laughs> nice you. talking to you.
1: As I said, we uh, I'm optimistic and I'm, I'm not the type of scaring people. But at least for now, we have a social responsibility to not incapacitate healthcare system and to not transmit the virus to you know vulnerable vulnerable yeah. Uh, patients. Yeah.
0: Yes. Stay safe, you too. And uh, I hope to speak to you soon. Sure. Thank you, Dr. Kyle. You're welcome. Bye. Thanks for listening today. If you're not familiar with goodness, head to www.goodness.me to access the online platform and articles and follow us at goodness on Instagram. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and share it. And we'll see you next week.